work from where you are, just do this. If it goes wrong once out of 100, I'm pretty happy with that. Know what you have, context. Know how your systems work together. What are the resources you have? What is the service they provide? How do these things work together? Have you actually identified your current state so that you know where you're going? Like all of that stuff, be realistic about what you're actually changing because if you're changing this system, you're probably not changing the world. But if you change that system and a few of the things that go around it, maybe you can change a little bit of the world. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Faith Timms. Faith has spent almost 20 years navigating the ups and downs of change in the education, government, heavy industry, and not-for-profit sectors. She's thrown out the cookie cutter when it comes to supporting the changing experience for people and organizations. Her change design approach combines the best of human-centered design, Kinevan, change management, L&D, OD, and experience design. From organizational change to learning and change wellness, Faith and her team take a fresh approach to the business of complex, intricate, fascinating people. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Faith Timms, it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Suzanne. It's so great to be here to talk to you. Look, to kick things off, Faith, I wonder, is there something about you most people wouldn't know? Oh, look, you know, I have many deep, dark secrets, (laughs) but probably the thing that most people don't know about me and something that I think is probably a bit of a secret skill that helps me deal with some of the, you know, the bigger egos in our kind of business world is that I actually trained as a stage manager. That's what my kind of first degree was in when I came out of of high school. I went and studied uh, stage management. So I have a bachelor in creative arts. And that's what I started to do when I came out of uni. I spent a lot of time here in Queensland working for places like Queensland Theatre Company and La Boite and, you know, the convention centre and South Bank, all of those sort of places. And then I went overseas and, and, you know, did a lot of stage management work there. So that was kind of where I, I started my career and then went through, you know, events and marketing and communications and all of those wonderful fields before I found my way to stage to change management. But I think always in those kind of people-based fields. But stage management was really where I kind of started working with people and with people who were in interesting circumstances. I think theatre is always a uh, a challenging space to be and lots and lots of different people coming together to make something. So Faith, is there something from that time as a stage manager that you think holds equally true today when you're managing change? Look, I think absolutely. And particularly in the complexity space, it was probably the first kind of space where I really had to lead in complexity. You know, I was working overseas on a, like, you know, a massive cruise ship, leading a team of sort of 23 
We had seven different nationalities. I had a couple of team members who were, you know, two or three times my age with families at home, lots and lots of different people with different circumstances who were a long way from home, trying to keep, you know, 3,000 people entertained in the middle of the Pacific. And we were doing all kinds of things that, when I think back now, I'm totally bemused that a I was 24 at the time, that a 24-year-old was leading this group of people, but sure, why not? Let's give that job to a 24-year-old. But what we were doing was things like, you know, we're, we're traveling to Alaska, we're changing out the shows um, that are being presented on board. You know, we had a 1,500-seat theater. We're doing big theater production shows on board. We want to change that out. So we get a call from LA and they're just like, oh, we'll just leave that show in a big container on the side of the dock for you in like Juneau, Alaska. Now, Juneau doesn't have any roads that go in and out of it. So how they got that big, (laughs) you know, container there, I'm not really sure, but sure, let's leave that to them. And I've never done that show before. Maybe a couple of people on my team had, but my team was changing every week. As we got to different ports, different people would come on and off the ship. So they had to learn their job the day they arrived. And then we would go and just pick this this show up. You know, we would just grab it off the dock. We would have documentation. We'd have some videos. We'd maybe have some people who'd done it before. And we'd have seven days while we were also still running the existing shows to learn that one. So during the day, we're rehearsing it, we're installing the sets, the dancers are on stage practicing, the singers are there, and we're rehearsing how we change the scenery, how we do, you know, the pyrotechnics on stage. Yep. While we're also, you know, at night showing people shows. (laughs) So it's just a situation where you really can't be prepared for what that's going to be like. Or what might happen? Is it poor weather today so we can't actually do anything? We can't practice. Okay, but we need to because no one knows what they're doing. No, too bad. That's just what's going to be thrown at you today. Actually, next week, the two people you think are going to sing in the show are going to be shipped out to a different cruise. So no, two different people coming on board to be the lead. Better get them up to speed. So just so much complexity so many changes every single time an environment that I was totally unfamiliar with but it was an incredible learning space improving ground for the kind of skills that you need to be able to lead through complexity because you really are just learning to do the next right thing what is it we need today how do we make what we have work and how do we go you know from where we are to move forward instead of thinking oh yes we'd love everything to be perfect we'd love to have all the resources we need we'd love everyone on the ship to know exactly what we would do with this show guess what we don't and there is no other resources coming what you have is what you have there's no dinghy off the back of the ship for you to just suddenly find magical (laughs) things so it was a really (laughs) although I think sometimes the passengers thought there was I'd really like more of that where do you think that's coming from yes Um, we're not choppering in magical supplies so an incredible opportunity to just really you know hone those skills around how do we manage the people we have you know and cater to their needs and understand them and really start to embrace their strengths and using what strengths we have available and leaning into those 
and meet, you know, where we are, what we have and what we can possibly do next. So sometimes, yeah, I find myself really <laughs> leaning back into that experience <laughs> in a very kind of odd way. <laughs> it's like, how do you not freak out when that happens? And I'm like, when you've been in 30-foot seas in the middle of the Pacific trying to put a show on and someone's like actually half your cast are, you know, just about to leave at the next port, uh, just what we're doing today is not so bad. <laughs> yeah. It really gives you some perspective. So, yeah, it's a strange um, kind of connection back into <laughs> complexity, but one that I find is of regular kind of relevance. Yes. I know we recently had a holiday on a cruise ship and when we were on there, they <laughs> none of the TV stations would work in the staterooms and they wouldn't work for the first few days. And then they sort of came back on and they announced, well, yes, someone unplugged the cable, but they unplugged it from the wrong end when the ship was leaving. So it got left, the cable got left on the dock. And they've had people on board the ship mm-hmm. but they can't just run down the road and buy a new cable. And so someone, the techs on board had to try and find what they could to rig up something new that they could actually get the satellite again. So I understand what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, much as we would have liked, we've just been able to, you know, call the local JB Hi-Fi and go, can you just drop something <laughs> off? Sometimes you just didn't have what you needed and you're like, yes. okay, so how do we, yes, cap- cobble together the things we have yeah, and just do what we can to get through. And you get very comfortable with kind of imperfection and being okay with just making up the next step and it, it's an interesting <laughs> way to live, I can tell you. It is. And I know you and I have had a number of conversations about the problems with cookie cutter change experiences. Do you want to share with our listeners why you're not a big fan of those types of cookie cutter experiences? Yeah, I don't think I'm shy about my my opinion of cookie cutter (laughs) change. (laughs) I'm fairly outspoken about that. I just think there's so much effort and so much money made in every other aspect of our lives to cater to our individualism. We tailor our iPhone screens. We have streaming services that, you know, we can pick what we want in any genre, any minute of the day. You know, our entertainment experience, our dining experience. I can walk out the door and have any, you know, food that I want from anywhere in the world. I can grab Uber Eats. There's countless varieties available to cater to what we clearly understand are our individual needs and our individual desires and our happiness in choice. You know, you think about like Malcolm Gladwell's really famous TED talk about, you know, happiness in choice, like that spaghetti sauce kind of analogy where he talks about the guy who did the really in-depth kind of research around, you know, companies that came to him looking for spaghetti sauce. They said, oh, we just want to, you know, sell more. And he's like, well, you need more variety. And they ended up with like 86 different types of spaghetti sauce because he they knew that's what people were looking for. They want choice. They want to be able to choose the thing that works for them. And then, you know, <laughs> we take all this choice and this individualism and 
all this focus on giving people this happiness through choice and we go in business and especially in HR processes, what we'd love to do to you is give you one framework, one way of doing it and if you don't like it going through this pipeline, then you must be wrong. Yes. Even though in every other aspect of your life we can see that you're an individual who has different needs and different desires and that you will enjoy things and feel much more satisfied if we cater to and understand and embrace your differences. When we come to the change process, for some reason, those individualistic shades just don't exist. Mm. Like inside the workplace, we want to somehow go, well, you know, it's all the same. And either you're kind of, you know, you're, you've got a high impact or a medium impact or a low impact and then all those people are some sort of homogenous group. And it's like if I walked into a restaurant and they were like, well, you're either like a steak eater or a chicken eater or a fish eater and that, that's your three menus, you get one choice on each, mm. I would be appalled at that restaurant, right? I'd be like, oh, that's not somewhere I ever want to go and eat again. But when I walk in and that's the change assessment that we do, somehow that's okay, you know? And I get that the personal understanding of impact is hard to define it's hard to gain but just leaving it to the change manager is generic at best (laughs) judgmental at worst yeah and then oh yeah we'll bring the leaders in and maybe they'll tell us it also changes though doesn't it right yeah well that's my other point is like hourly daily weekly what I think and how I'm impacted by change changes because it's not just about your change it's about the 70 other changes that are happening in the organization the changes that are happening for me personally the changes that are happening in the world even if you can gain a portfolio view that's still not that's just cumulatively making assessments that are probably generic how much can you really understand you know concurrent changes are impacting me yes but Monday I might feel good about it because I got a good night's sleep and I ate well and I'm feeling great and I had a good time with my family. Monday afternoon it's going to highly impact me because I feel stressed and tired and I had a crappy day with my boss. Yeah. I don't know of a change tool on the planet that can tell me all those individual changes and track them and give me meaningful insight to be able to then go, I am putting together the right change plan for every single one of these people. And all of these frameworks and cookie-cutter kind of approaches just homogenise people. And once we do it once and go, oh, I got it, that's my high-impact group, that's who I'm going to focus on, thank you so much. And I just think it's so, it misses the point of everything else we're doing in the world to individualise and give choice and, you know, it just, yeah, for me, the cookie cutter is just it flies in the face of all of the other logic that's out there. Or it comes from a place of risk aversion as well when people uh, know they've got to do gateway reviews and so they know someone's going to come and review this. And I know I've been in a range of particularly ICT projects where you've been senior responsible owner and you might have the documentation, but the documentation is point in time and if you've got a good reviewer 
the good reviewers actually looking for all of the other things that go beyond those cookie cutter processes that tell them whether or not you are listening to stakeholders, whether you are responding to people, whether you're actually agile enough to adapt. Yeah, where's all the meaning making that you've done beyond that? Yeah. Is there meaning making and sense making that you're doing beyond that? And if you're not, then that cookie cutter approach is gonna, it's gonna come a cropper very, very quickly because you've made mm. one assessment at one time that's probably very generic and you have created an entire plan based around something that's potentially fairly left of center and people are going to shift and change around that and they're also going to respond to the plan that you've put in place are you ever going back to check how that response has shifted and changed the initial assessment like i just i think so much of what we rely on as you know standard change frameworks doesn't allow for any of that constant reassessment and, and understanding of what how people are making sense of what you're doing, let alone how they made sense of it at the beginning. So yeah, yeah, I really struggle with people who are like, well, we have an approach and we just follow it from A to Z. And, I'm like, and the humans, <laughs> were they in this at all? That's actually like what your whole process is reliant on. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for having a red, orange and green, but where are the people that make those up? So, yeah, I'm like, there are other colours in the spectrum and it'd be really nice to, you know, understand where and how they come in and how they change over time and how people are telling you about that and, you know, what work you're doing underneath it. So, yes, I'm wary of anyone who's like, this is my plan. So, Faith, given the challenges with cookie-cutter experiences, what do you think does make for a good changing experience? Well, I think the big word you use in there is changing, mm -hmm. not change. So that's a big thing for me. You'll see I write about it a lot. I like to use the word changing, not change, so that it's, you know, a verb, not a noun. Or, you know, technically it's like a present participle. It's like a, there's a whole grammar thing in there if you're a Nazi about grammar. But... I think the important thing is that it's continuous, you know, that we're not treating it as we're doing a change, but we're understanding that we are changing and that it's not just happening in the workplace, that people are changing in a whole range of aspects because context is incredibly important, right? And I think that's a big part of what a lot of frameworks miss is the context. Have we actually understood what is happening more broadly? You know, what is happening in the organisation? What is happening for our people? I mean, particularly at the moment, we've got tremendous issues around the mental health and wellness issues, you know, aspects of how change is impacting people, not just from their organisation, but you know, what's happening in the world, what we've emerged from, from COVID and are potentially re-entering now you know, what's happening with cost of living and all of those sort of things, those things are playing a huge role in how people are able to continue changing in the workplace. So if you're not putting it in that context and understanding that this is a continual process, you're just going, oh, well, on the 30th of November, we're done. You're not. You're not. And if that's the, the full stop you put on it, 
where is the support and the understanding and the, you know that broader context piece? I think the other thing about it is, is it responsive? Like we talked about, are we actually in conversation with the people that we're changing? Are we actually understanding what they know about the existing context? Usually most organisations that I go into, what they're trying to change, they don't even understand what they've got. (laughs) let alone what they're trying to change. Mm -hmm. So how much have they talked to their people and understood what they have, where they're starting from, and then where they're going? What does that context look like and how responsive are they? What sense-making are they doing pre-change so that they actually understand where they're going to go? So much of it is do you know where you are so you know where you're going? Current state is murky at best. And then we've bought something shiny and pretty. So we're going there, but we didn't know where we started. And then but people who know your context best are the people who live in it every day. That's your your humans, right? Yes. But we want to keep everything secret and undercover when it comes to change for some reason. It's got to be a big bang surprise. We've got a new system. You can't be responsive and context-based if you want to make everything a secret. So that for me is really important. And then the last piece is really leader capability. For me, if you have leaders who don't know what they're doing, you got no hope for a good changing experience. If you don't start with your leaders, work with your leaders all the way through and finish with your leaders, you can you just stop now. Yeah. As much as we want our people to be responding all the way through, who's doing that work? Not the change person. I mean, they're, they're helping. But we want leader capability to be uplifted throughout. So the next time you come around to do this, because it's a constantly changing face, you have got humans in your business who understand how to do the sense making, how to decide what the next changing piece is because they've already done the sense making. Yes. It's just fundamental skills. And I think we're missing them. I mean, you know, I was reading a post on LinkedIn just today about the CIA simple sabotage document. I was like, I'm curious, I'll read it. And uh, the section on general interference with organisations reads like a how-to for poor leaders today. It's like bring up irrelevant issues as often as possible, make speeches, make lengthy speeches and talk as frequently as possible at great length. Illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experience. Haggle over precise wordings of communications, minutes and resolutions. Refer all matters to committees and attempt to make committees as large as possible, never less than five. I'm like, wait, what? One of them's advocate caution and be reasonable and urge your fellow conferees to be reasonable and avoid haste. I was like, This is like a how-to for like some of the senior leaders that I have worked with. Yes. And it is literally like a simple sabotage for World War II. And it's so interesting to me that that is incredibly relevant now because that leader capability is a huge, huge gap for my mind to any kind of continuing changing success. If we don't work on that as a core part of every change strategy, if you've got a leader who's like, oh, no, I just want you to work with the people down there to make them do it, 
but our leaders are perfect, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, there's four skills we need every leader to have and so that's that's what's going to make your changing experience yeah. really good. And so, Faith, you were talking about how important it is for leaders to be able to do that sense-making. So I know we're both fans of the Kinevan framework for decision and sense-making. How do you incorporate its use in your work with clients? So, yeah, I think Dave Snowden's work's been a big influencer on me in a whole range of different ways. I think that idea of like the next right thing is a big one for me, you know, not his idea of not sort of, you know, rushing ahead and having this kind of, I think particularly change, like a 40 page change strategy that says, this is what we're going to do for the next two years. I've really, Mm. I haven't done that with probably the last half a dozen clients that I've worked with. We have a three page strategy. That's what you get. So FYI, (laughs) future clients. But then we really look at how do we use those sense-making techniques? So things like anecdote circles is something that I really like working and that's one of Dave's sense-making like methods. So, you know, really about having people come together and share stories about what's happening for them. And that technique is really about them not necessarily knowing where or how or what's going to happen with those stories, but just coming together and having the opportunity to talk. And I think a lot of his facilitation techniques too. So really being that kind of guide from the side, not the sage from the stage. So we, there's a lot of, I think, change managers who feel like they want to kind of be in front of things and leading it and doing that kind of, I know the answer. And I don't think we do. I think the organisation needs to work together to find the best solution for themselves. So I really enjoy like Dave's approach around really putting your own thoughts and feelings to the side and letting the people in the room find their way to what is right for them and not having a predisposed kind of outcome in mind necessarily for every session, but letting things come out organically. I'm working on a big project at the moment. It's like kind of a three-year redevelopment. And that is a change that is both moving very slowly but is shifting constantly because you can imagine there's building and construction issues aplenty. Yes. It's like, oh, okay, we can't get this material. We can't access these things. It's raining. All of those things mean that things shift all the time. So... We're doing a lot of work to not necessarily go, this is exactly when and how things will move on site. We just can't. I can't put together a timeline. I don't know when we will move people in or out or when buildings will be knocked down or anything because the builders don't know. There's some vague maybes, but vague maybes don't make a lot of people feel real good inside. So we are literally doing a program of helping the leaders to build their skills around how they communicate and support their teams to understand what the broader change looks like, what we look like when we move in the future, and how they communicate and support when things change quickly. Yes. So first time we had to communicate something that changed quickly is an utter disaster. (laughs) They weren't doing team meetings. They didn't know really what to do, how to communicate. Oh, okay, we're we're bulldozing this thing and there's you've all got to, you know, make these particular changes in behaviour. 
not real great. But over time, we've built their skills. They know how to manage these kinds of responses. So now when we say, oh, you know that big demountable that's right smack dab in the middle of the site, we're going to crane that out on Tuesday and it's Friday. Mm. They can step in with a short briefing and be able to go tell exactly who needs to know what information they need, organise their operational plans, communicate it, and facilitate that on site for Tuesday. So, you know, I can't put together a change plan that says on Tuesday in three months' time we'll be doing this and here's my SharePoint site and here's my, you know, my change agents who are going to do this. But it goes back to what you were saying, Faith. I could. About you have to equip the leaders who are there day-to-day so that they can support people going through that changing process. They have to do that and when I'm not there and their branch manager's not there, they're the ones who are able to go, I got the info, I know exactly what to do with this now because I have had, I've had the training, I've had the coaching, I've had the support and I understand why my people need to know this and what it will do for them to feel confident and to feel assured that this is the steps to take on site. So they get that now. So they can do the things that they need to do. And if they're equipped properly, they also understand that they need to listen to the people that they're leading and that they will need to adapt what they're doing and not just stick to the script. That's it. Every one of these changes looks totally different. It's like today we're taking a demandable out, tomorrow we're pouring concrete somewhere else, the next day we're ripping up, you know, a whole channel right down the middle of a walkway. Mm. So all of the paths of travel are different. So different people impacted in different ways every time. So in no way could I plan what every single one of those things looks like. It's truly complex. Like every single one of those things looks different, hits different people in different ways, different people on site in, in different kind of combinations. So only the people that are there leading those individuals can do that and they need the right skills to do that. And that's fundamentally building that without me being the holder of all knowledge. Yeah. And that situation that you've described sounds like it's not just complex, it sounds like it's a bit VUCA so that there's a fair bit of volatility, some uncertainty, some ambiguity, as well as a complexity. And so leaders really need to know how do you actually support your team in that type of of an environment where it is uncertain, where it is ambiguous about when things are going to to happen or what the impact of that is going to be? So you can't go in and do a very discreet change impact assessment and identify everything that's going to impact people. It doesn't mean that you don't have those conversations with people and you don't prepare people but it's a different way of thinking about things. And I think that's why Kenevan is, I really like it because it helps people make sense of, are we in an obvious situation? Is it complicated? Is it complex or is it just chaotic? And we just need to get a bit of order back in to place so we can work out where we're going to next. So yeah, it's quite helpful. What are some of the other common mistakes that you see organisations making when they're trying to change? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges is 
related to what we reward our leaders for. I think KPIs are a big challenge. You know, as leaders, they're in in a position usually in an organisation where their roles aren't permanent, so they're linked to how they perform. What are we rewarding them for? Usually financial outcomes, not usually people outcomes. Mm. And I get that people outcomes are hard to put KPIs around. But if what you reward people for is not related to the behaviours that you're hoping to drive, if I got a choice on what I spend my hours in the day on, I'm going to go for the thing that makes sure that I have a job. Yes. It's as simple as that. I might have every great intention in the world. I might be the most fabulous people leader. But when it comes down to it, if at the end of the year I need to make sure that I still am here to look after my people, I am going to make sure that those financial outcomes on that dashboard are met, which means I may have to sacrifice time, resources, whatever it takes for my people. And it sucks. (laughs) And then we say, oh, how come they don't have time to spend on these change projects? How come they can't sponsor appropriately? How come they can't do this sense-making stuff? How come they're not doing what we need? It's not organisationally enabled. It's as simple as that. Their organisation isn't giving you the time and making it a priority, you aren't going to do it. So, or you're not going to prioritise it. So I think that's a problem. I think leaders don't always have the knowledge or the skills or the ability to lead these things, particularly when it comes to like some of that more VUCA type world, you know. I don't know quite how to help someone who doesn't know how to cope with volatility or ambiguity. I don't know how to do it, so how do I help them do it? I think some of that mental health and wellness piece comes into it. So those are the challenges that leaders are facing and organisations are struggling with when it comes to trying to change at the moment. And I think that organisations don't look at the broader context when they choose the things to change. Yes. I want to change the finance system. Great. But are you looking at the processes, the policies? The systems that flow into your finance system and that come out the other side because you're changing this much of it, but you are not affecting any of the things that sit around it Mm. and context is everything. So they change this piece of the puzzle and leave everything else that's toxic around it. So what? Everyone that you talk to goes, so what? If we don't fix this thing over here, Mm. won't matter if we change this system. It's shit in, shit out, to be perfectly frank. And they know that. The people know that. So they're not invested in the change. They're never going to be invested in changing because they know fundamentally you are not fixing the broader context. So don't spend the time and money changing this because it's pretty and fancy if you've not looked at the broader context of the change. I think fundamentally that's where a lot of organisations are failing at the moment. They've bought into the pretty fancy change that for this one piece and not thought about, oh, but if we keep doing this, all of this stuff poorly around it, we've wasted our money, you know. If we keep having a paper thing that sticks into it, who cares? Yeah. I think that's such an important point, Faith, in terms of it's context but it's systemic context. Actually understanding 
not just the immediate system, but all of the other systems that sort of sit around and impact. And then I'm just thinking about what you were saying about leaders. And we know that there are a lot of really great leaders out there who are not able to do their job because of the organizational context. Organizations want people to manage change well, but they put people in situations where they're just in meeting after meeting, focused, quite frankly, they're overgoverned. Mm-hmm. An expectation of collaboration, but there's no real value attached to the the collaboration. Like, why are we collaborating on this? Is it worth it? Yeah. Is it necessary? <laughs> there's no six hours of your day spent on collaboration. Green tick. Like, yeah, that's not a KPI for collaboration. Like, so why would I do it when it stands in the way of me achieving other things? But it's also, we see organizations taking a very unsophisticated approach to collaboration and just saying, oh, you have to collaborate on everything instead of actually looking at what are the things where it's valuable to collaborate and where do you just need to stop wasting time, get on, get it done. And so what that all means is that we then see these leaders who don't have time to actually left in their diary to say, I need to have a conversation with this person, this person, and this person, not an email exchange sent at 10 o'clock at night, but an actual interaction where you can listen, see what's happening for people and respond and actually deal with the changing. So, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Leaders today just need space to actually engage their teams so that they can lead. Yeah, and instead we're loading them up on all these other things because they've got to achieve this, you know, these outcomes. Here's the output that we need from you. Here's all the operational stuff, but we don't understand why you can't also lead change. And it's like, well, leading change takes time. Like there are human things that need to be done. So, yeah, unless the organisation prioritizes that gives time and resources for that unless it's organizationally enabled doesn't happen yeah so faith this all sounds pretty complex (laughs) so what does thriving in complexity mean to you okay thriving complexity okay so work from where you are know what you have and appreciate that you don't know what's coming those are my three things Mm -hmm. That's thriving in complexity. So work from where you are, like it's the cruise ship, right? Like you you just, you got what you got when it comes to your people, your resources, that imperfection piece. I see a lot of change programs, but also just individuals and teams, like trying to come up with processes that address the 1% that might go wrong at some point. Mm. And I'm like, manage the 1% when it happens, but work to that 99%, get do that every single day and escalate when it's needed, whereas we're like escalating everything because we want it all to be perfect. Mm. And I'm like, if we can just, you know, like work from where you are, just do this. If it goes wrong once out of 100, I'm pretty happy with that. Yes. Like I think we can, let's let's spend the time when that goes wrong instead of spending all this time getting it like so that nothing will ever go wrong like we're humans things are going to go wrong yes there is going to be an occasional failure 
manage it when it happens. Yes. Not like let's just ruminate until the world ends. Know what you have. Yeah. Context. Know how your systems work together. What are the resources you have? What is the service they provide? How do these things work together? Have you actually identified your current state so that you know where you're going? Like all of that stuff, be realistic about what you're actually changing because if you're changing this system, you're probably not changing the world. But if you change that system and a few of the things that go around it, maybe you can change a little bit of the world, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more successfully. Knowing your current state is so important because it's not just about what you're changing, it's about what you want to keep, what you don't want to lose. Yep. So you need to understand what's working. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so many organizations just go, well, we're just getting rid of that. And I'm like, but you haven't even looked at the ecosystem. Mm. We're just pulling the middle out of it. Is it? 40% of this staying, 60% or 100% of that staying, but you were just pulling the guts out of it. Mm. Oh, that's not going to work. Yeah. I know. I've been in that situation <laughs> multiple times. And then, like, appreciate you don't know what's coming. Mm. So, like, if we can learn anything from COVID, <laughs> I hope it's that <laughs> we don't know what's coming. So that idea of just comfort with ambiguity, that there is going to, you know, can we just plan for this, do that thing and then see what's next? Yes. Like not having these ridiculous programs where we're like, well, in three years' time, on the 31st, we're going to do this. I'm like, I would like to bet my life on the fact that you won't be doing that. Yes. Like you can't, I would bet my life that in three months' time you won't be doing that on the 31st. Like organizations don't stay the same people don't stay the same the environment doesn't stay. none of it does so can we accept that and be able to just you know start thriving in this idea of ambiguity it's okay to not have a three-year plan let's look at what we do really well in the next three months yes. which is where we can start knowing what we have and actually working from where we are instead of um, far off future. And it doesn't mean that you totally ignore the future, but it's not so defined and specific. It's more ballpark, you know, look, depending on what happens, this is where we could be around this time, or this is the direction that we want to head in. Yeah. We may have to adapt depending on what happens, but this is where we're heading. Yeah. Yeah. And not this idea of failure if we don't get there. Mm. Like everybody's failed if we don't get to this exact date at this exact time. It's like, but this is just the trajectory, yes. right? Like we're heading in this direction, not, oh, if we, if we don't hit that exact moment, then it's total failure. And it's like, well, okay, I think instead let's just all go in that direction together but understand that, you know, that actually might not be desirable for us mm. in six months' time. Yeah. It actually might be really a poor outcome if we get there. Yes. Wouldn't it be nice to not go for a poor outcome? <laughs> like to have an option to opt out? Well, I think how many times do we reinvent ourselves, reinvent what we're doing because of what's changing around us? You have to respond to what else is going on around in that broader context. But as long as it sort of it's fit for purpose at that particular time in that particular context. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. So Faith, I'm really curious, have you ever been faced with a complex situation that afterwards you wish that you had managed differently? Of course. (laughs) So uh, a good example of this is, um, I can't even think how many years ago it was now, but it was a while ago. I was working on an IT project. It's always an IT project, (laughs) right? And I like this is a really good example of where I didn't look at the broader context. And so we were installing (laughs) new software and it was a national program and we were doing different sites around Australia. Every site had a slightly different operating model. But there was this idea from the organisation that we could have some sort of like franchise, you know, standard, that everyone could do things in a similar way, despite the fact that all these sites had a very standard kind of way of operating. And we were only working with this one team that were kind of the end of the process and they were getting the software upgrade, but they were downstream. They were like two systems downstream. So they got the end of the customer data and we were shifting their model so that they could handle things more efficiently, distribute more efficiently. Really great idea, lots of really good intentions. As I was going through the process, we'd rolled out. I started the day before they went live, by the way, just when you want to start a project. So good. And as we got to like the second site, I was like, can I ask why we're not engaging with these other two teams who are upstream? Like why are they not considered to be core stakeholders in this project? No, de- no, the, those systems are not up for grabs. They're not, we do not want to engage with them. These are not stakeholders that you, you will be not to touch, mm. not to go near, stay away. And I was like, is that a political thing? Is that a, you know, like I asked that. <laughs> the stupid questions because I do yeah yeah a little bit of that bit of you know they've had some changes and they're kind of not you know we don't want to get into the, to what they're doing we're very happy with the model we have going for them I'm like yeah but the data that's coming from them if it's not pristine perfecto it doesn't go through our system and it's not pristine so we're gonna come a cropper right and Yeah, I didn't push it. Why do you think that was? I think I thought we can just, we'll just manage it in this little ecosystem here, right? There was so much other complexity in how the, how each site was working and how we were going to change the operating models in every single site. And I was kind of only really new to complexity at the time and how I, I was trying to, cookie cutter these guys into a framework and I'm like I don't know how to make all of this work in a a to z situation so I was really starting to kind of you know flex my complexity muscles a little bit and feel like I could maybe do this a little bit more freely and I think I was so busy focusing on how I would do this kind of branch review of process and bring these different types of stakeholders to a similar way of thinking that I went, yeah, you know what? I can't layer on anything else. I just can't. And I think these guys are going to be really difficult because they've already had a whole process. Mm. 
And so I backed off it. And like me now, I would be like, bring it, bring me more, like layer on more because that is so intrinsic to how this piece of software works. And as it turned out, software failure to this day, both the general manager and I get calls about that software going, we're still having trouble with it, still a massive issue, we still don't know how to do it. I was talking to the GM just the other day about it actually and he's like, yeah, I still got a call about it. Mm. They ended up restructuring the entire department because there were so many fundamental issues with it, like big round of redundancies, big issues, rolled back a whole heap of stuff that we did, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I feel a level of responsibility for because I didn't push in and really get them to do the context work and go, no, this plus this equals this. I would do things differently now, but I think I backed off from that much complex work. So in terms of doing it differently, Faith, would it be about working out what are those really key incisive questions that need to be worked through? So yes, recognizing there's a lot of complexities going on. Yeah, for me, there's a big question around context. I ask context questions every time now when I come into a client. I'm like, what is this connected to that could be an issue? So like in my change design framework, there's an OD Mm. section and part of that is connecting process and systems in the organisation into the change management work we do Mm -hmm. rather than just going, oh, I stay in my change management lane, no, don't touch any of those things. It's like... Mm. I feel really strongly about asking those questions and understanding how other systems and processes work and pushing for why are they not involved in this change? How is the impact of that flowing downstream? Mm -hmm. Because if we don't know that, potentially we're missing out on something that's going to you know, come up a long way down the track potentially. Like it could be, you know, three months or six months down the track. Yeah. But these things, you know, they're understood by the teams, but often when you're the external coming in or the project team coming in, you're not hooked into this stuff. And so this is where you need to really tap into all of those different perspectives so that you can make sense of what's happening. Yeah. Because someone might have a perspective on something that the people who brought you in to do help with the piece of work, they don't even know. Yeah, this is where I think resistance in change management is really problematic as well because we really often kind of categorise people who ask these kinds of questions and who bring up these kinds of issues as resistant. And it's like sometimes they're the ones who are really asking the context questions bringing up the, but have we thought about how this is connected to that or how this will impact that? I'm like, maybe we, you know, we don't need to be categorising it like that. They're just having a response. They're asking the questions that, you know, we could be listening to. So I think that's another really problematic part of those kinds of cookie cutter frameworks is that they're like, have a resistance management plan. It's like, so we're going to cut those things off immediately without, understanding them do you know when I was involved in a really big project once and the most effective thing that we did 
was actually sent. So I was the basically project sponsor and I just used to send the program manager out to have coffee with absolutely everybody to listen (laughs) and to understand and work out what were the patterns of concerns. And then we would actually come back and then sit down and go, all right, so what are we doing about this? Is there any truth to this as an issue? What about this one? What about that one? But also the value of just having that human engagement and the conversation and helping people to process what is changing in their own minds help to shift things enormously. Yeah. I don't think you can underestimate the value of actually talking to people. Mm-hmm. Like just going and having those conversations. Like I think, you know, like call it, you know, like just change management work or, you know, sense making or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't matter. Just go and have conversations with people. People call like, you know, it might be resistance management or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't matter. All it is is going out and finding out what people are thinking, what the actual issues are, Mm. because what they say in a workshop might be very different to what they say over coffee. 90% of what I know about projects is from me sitting in the office. Like I'll just go and pull up a desk in the office I'll sit in the lunchroom, I buy people coffee. Like it is all done just from me being a regular part of the team and they chat to me and let me know what's going on. And then I'm like, well, I've heard that from 10 people. So I feel like that's pretty solid intel to go and start taking some action on. If the same person is, you know, potentially bringing up 20 different issues, maybe you need to talk to them about something, you know, is there something else that's happening for them? But it gives you like so much insight, I think. And we like, it's part of that issue for leadership, right? They don't have time to do that. They're not Mm. able to stop and talk to people. But yeah, I think like from a context perspective, it just makes a massive difference to be able to have that time to talk to people and understand what they're thinking and doing. And it shifts so much. Some weeks they're great. Some weeks they're struggling. Some days they're, they'll have five different emotions. Yes. <laughs> it's like in the morning I'm great with it. Lunchtime is terrible because I had a terrible customer call and the system failed me and I'm really sick of it and I want to tell you about this one button that doesn't work and I just thought of it and I'm like, you know, oh, great, give me that insight right now, mm. you know, and so... It's incredibly valuable, but putting them in the medium impact, I'm going to ignore them. Yeah. It's just wasteful. I don't know. I just feel like it ignores all the humanity of our roles. So, yeah. Faith, given you know, you've had fairly extensive experience in the change space, if you could go back and give your 25-year-old self some advice, what would that be? Oh, I think I would tell myself to not, to stop pleasing people. Mm -hmm. I used to be a pretty good people pleaser. It's something I still say to myself now because, you know, sometimes I'll be like, yeah, sure, I can do that. (laughs) So, yeah, not pleasing people is is a pretty big one. And I think for change managers particularly, 
we want to be seen as helpful. We want to be seen as the person who, you know, is there for people and can be supportive and helpful. But I do think being someone who can push back and ask the questions and, you know, be that voice in the room that says the things that other people don't feel comfortable to say is really, really important. So like 15 years ago, I would not have asked the questions or said the things that I say now. So yeah, I think that. And the other thing is that if you don't ask for things, you won't get them. Yes. So I will always be the person who will say, well, why can't we do that? Like, can we get that support? Can we connect that thing into this project? Can we meet with those people? Can I go and talk to that executive? You know, because what's the worst that can happen? They say no. But usually I do it in a very charming way and they say, yes, of course. (laughs) So, yeah, but if you don't ask for things, then you don't get them. You know, there's no chance. So I think those are probably my my two biggest pieces of advice for 25-year-old me who's floating around the ocean. (laughs) And so, Faith, if people remember only one thing from our conversation today, what would that one thing be? Look, I've said it 75 times, so I'm sure they'll remember that I've said that context (laughs) is king. For me, like, what is the context that you're working in? And the only people who can tell you truly about the context are the people in the organisation. So that whether you're doing it, you know, through sense making or workshops or whatever you're going to do, whatever methods you use, I think context is incredibly important when you're working in change. Thinking that we know what's best for people is incredibly dangerous. Yes. So I think that, you know, having an understanding of the context that you're working in, expanding that context, looking outside of that little bubble of, you know, this is our change and thinking about the changing environment, really important, whether it's, you know, the changing environment for the individual, for the organisation, for the systems and processes, for your own personal frameworks, whatever it is, what is the context and how can you make sure you thoroughly understand it and you are expanding your view of it all the time? That's, I think, just really, really vital if you want to really get to that, you know, human side of change and not just a framework. Yes. Faith, lots of value in our conversation today. How can our listeners connect with you online? I am probably easiest to find on LinkedIn under my name, or you can find me at timsandco.com. That's great. Well, Faith, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm sure, if nothing else, people will remember that context is king and that cookie cutter change approaches are really not good for a whole range of reasons. So thanks so much for joining us today. Yes, the cookie cutter is dead. Get rid of that cookie cutter, definitely. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time. Bye.